What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 41 of the Hashishin, presented by Roz and Evolution, who you can visit at rozandevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from Ryan, aka Terp Style, a medical grower from Northern Michigan. We discuss his evolution as a cultivator and hash maker. He tells us about the different genetics he's got in the garden, including a personal favorite of mine, the cheesequake. So definitely stay tuned for it. Shout out to every person who makes up our community on Patreon. It's through your support, which allows this passion project to continue. I am incredibly appreciative as it's an honor for me to be in a position to do so. So thank each and every one of you for your support past and present if you ever can or want to support the podcast as well as access additional content like our latest video series or web series you can do so at patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn via our instagram handle at the hashish in or on our website the hashish shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling our awesome sponsors, including our main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100, where you can find everything you need to make rosin, including parchment, pre-presses, and of course, high quality rosin bags and wash bags. I've said it before and I'll say it again, they have a stellar customer service. They're always in stock of what you need. They get it to you fast and it's high quality gear that you can count on. So if you wash hash or you make rosin, go to rosinevolution.com and use our discount code, the letters THI710 to save an additional 5% on their already reasonable prices and to support the podcast. Again, THI710 saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company who you can visit at powersplates.com where you can find the highest grade rosin press on the market made of the highest quality components assembled and tested by hand one by one they appreciate all your support over the last year their new drop is live including their classic gold and black look which are super sleek but also an assortment of their new artistic series, including the lava finish, a favorite of mine, their gunmetal finish. And although I believe they only have one left, they have a teal splatter on black, which is really nice. So if you're in the market for a rosin press, go grab your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press on Instagram at powersplates or at powersplates.com and save $75 off their presses by using our exclusive savings code, the letters THI. Again, THI saves you $75 off all Powers Plates rosin kits at powersplates.com. Shout out to our homies and sponsors, Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company, who you can visit at sixstarsociety.com. They're bringing you a ton of heat to show your love for the resin while enjoying your lifestyle. Whether you're in the washroom or staying active outdoors and need to keep dry and warm with their star anorak jackets, or you want to take a few dabs and chill in their embroidered full melt hoodie and hasha sweatpants, they've got you covered. But if you do see a design you like, you might want to scoop it before it sells out, like the majority of their gear. So if you or someone you know has a passion for the hashin, go grab the apparel that reflects your love for the resin 
on Instagram at the number six underscore star underscore society and save an additional 5% with Six Star Society by using our savings code, the letters T-H-I at sixstarsociety.com. And last but never least, shout out to our homie and sponsor, Rocky Mountain Seed Bank, who you can visit at rockymountainhigh719.org where you can find plenty of heat to search through your garden from trusted breeders like Capulator, in-house genetics, hash powerhouse, bloom seed co and more. And because Rocky is growing all the gear himself and their work speaks for itself, his menu is very well curated, which is one of the things I really love about Rocky. He makes that same gear available to you. He's also a trusted source with solid customer service. As I hope you know by now, I try to work with very select groups of sponsors because I want to make sure that when you're being referred to someone, they have a great product as well as great ethics. So if you need some beans for your garden, visit Rocky Seed Bank at RockyMountainHigh719.org. And because he's got so much love from listeners, he's keeping the 25% off anything on his site for the time being. So take advantage of a well-curated genetics list with great customer service and take a quarter off the price of your beans by using our savings code, the letters T-H-I at RockyMountainHigh719.org. The last thing I wanted to mention is after a few years of visualizing this event, I would like to formally announce the Hashish Inn's Smoking Jacket, a live hash experience. This one will be hosted by the Coffee and Donuts crew. It's taking place in Los Angeles on September 16th and 17th of this year. It's a two-day hash event, which will be capped by a friendly competition. Competitor spots will be limited. Judging spots will be limited. Tickets will go on sale Wednesday, June 1st. Tune into our Instagram for more details. For those of you that hung around this long, thank you so much, and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 41 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Shiragam Amir. Today, I'm stoked to be here with Ryan, aka Terpstyle, based out of Northern Michigan. You can follow him on Instagram at Terpstyle. That's T-E-R-P style. What's up, Ryan? Welcome. Thank you for taking the time to talk multiple times, man. What's up, Shiragam? Thank you so much for uh, having me on, man. Been listening to you for years. This is like truly an honor. Yeah, it's so funny, man. Uh, we've been talking about that. And like I say all the time, it's kind of a trip that people even know about the podcast. But yeah, at this point, it's been going for a while. And I also want to say that I appreciate your support throughout the years, not only listening, but on the Patreon. And it was cool to be able to meet you finally in person in Oklahoma and check out uh, your fire hash, which really had us all impressed. And you mentioned to me that while you've been listening to the podcast, obviously you had been cultivating as a caretaker in the medical scene in Michigan considerably before that, but then you started transitioning over to hash. And then you said over the last two or three years, you created Terp Style. And I'm curious why you decided to turn it kind of into a brand. I made a lot of hash on, in the early days with just under my like IG handle, which wasn't really a brand, but just a grower's page. I did that a number of years. And, but it basically just comes down to like having a sticker and a, a known brand is helpful to just getting, getting your stuff out there and letting people check it out. I was really low key in the beginning. 
trying to stay like really low key with it. So it took me a little while to actually throw a sticker on my stuff and get branded up. Yeah, that's cool. And by the way, I really like your logo. It's pretty like simple and straightforward, but I, I really, really like it and how it's kind of finished off on the jars. So I just wanted to mention that as well. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Yeah. So let's talk about like what got you into processing hash. Cause you said you had been processing a good amount before you actually decided to, you know, almost let's call it formalize it into a brand. Yeah. Probably my first dab of hydrocarbon BHO. After that started, you know, I was dabbing BHO for a little while and wasn't really happy with what I was getting or what, you know, what was going on with that. So I just started um, trying to figure out how to do solventless, how to wash and press, not press at first, but like do some dry sift. And then that was basically what it was. It was just trying to create something like a cleaner medicine, something cleaner to dab on. That was my initial start of it to start going with it. And by cleaner, what do you mean? Probably cleaner tasting, cleaner, just doesn't, isn't made with chemicals. So you just have that certainty that you're not dabbing anything that is harmful. And that was important to me from the beginning, just based on, I mean, early, you know, years ago when everybody was open blasting and all kinds of BHO was on the scene. And I, I could just tell back then that I was looking for something safer and cleaner to uh, dab on. Just to have kind of a reference, what year was this that you had that first dab? Probably 14 or 15. Okay, cool. Maybe, a, long, maybe a little bit earlier, but somewhere around there. And how long had you been smoking up until that point? I'd probably been smoking for a good five, six years at that point. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned outside of flavor, I think last time we spoke was just like the instant almost effect that you're getting off the hash was also something that was appealing to you. Yeah, it was just, it was that it was the fact that you don't have to burn an entire joint or smoke up a room or take 30 minutes to smoke. It was instant. And, and then on top of it, it was just, it tasted so much better. And like, you were able to get like, what, like really good flavors and your fingers didn't stink like, uh, like ash and resin. And it was just, it was just an overall better experience. And uh, once I dabbed for the first time, I mean, I was sold. I was like, yep, this is how I want to medicate. Yeah, that's funny. I, I told you, uh, you know, that it's a good thing that your experience was good and kind of led you on this path because a lot of people seemed like they didn't have a great first experience. And I'm wondering back, like you said, in 14 or 15, when you took this dab, what were you dabbing off? Hot titanium. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were hotties. It definitely took a year or two to get onto some uh, clean quartz and do it proper. So at first it was, I think my first rig had a, ti had a titanium nail on it for sure. That's funny, man. And then you said soon after, while you were looking around for options to not rely on the BHO, you started messing around with flower rosin a little bit and you found a favorite in the nine pound hammer. Yeah. At first I was just doing some flower rosin before I ever made any bubble hash. So yeah, I would um, basically 
pull a few grams of nine pound hammer flour and I would squish it with a hair straightener in between some parchment paper. And, you know, I do that five or six, 10 times and collect a nice two gram, three gram puddle of oil. And I would smoke on that for, you know, a couple of days. And I was, that, that was far more superior to me back then than any of the BHO that was coming around. So I knew right then, even with like a hair straightener, I was getting a better quality product right out of the gate. Although looking back now, you said that really you feel like that nine pound hammer produced pretty heavy in, in flour rosin. It did. It actually was the best. I mean, I, I, I tried to squish all my flour and that was the best one that gave me the best yields. Ironically, it doesn't wash. I mean, I've tried to wash that plant numerous dozen times. And I've also had other processors try to wash it for me just to see if there was something I was missing with it. But no, it's always come back to where it doesn't, it just does not transfer over. It's less than a, less than 1% for sure. It's really, it just does not work well in ice water, but it does with hair straightener. And it also does with hydrocarbon. It's, it's a beast in um, DHO for sure. Yeah, that is an interesting little tidbit where it does well in these two other forms, but just doesn't produce an ice and water for sure. The genetics have so much to do with ice and water and being able to have the proper kind of resin to work in that setting, I guess you could call it. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. I mean, the, the heads and, uh, are there. They just won't fall off or you can't get it cold enough to get them to knock off. Or I mean, I personally can't. But yeah, when I look at like the yields on a BHL return, and you, you can tell that there's a lot of hash on that plant. And you told me that, funny enough, you like that profile so much that you actually would dab some good BHO of it because you just can't really get it in solventless, or at least in hash, I guess, hash rosin, you could say. Yeah, yeah, it it is one of, Probably one of my favorite turps for sure. So yeah, if it does come around in, in BHO, I, I'll dab that. I'll, I'll take a couple dabs of that just because I love it. There's my cream in it and it's, it's really just a really pleasant, pleasant flavor. Yeah, that's cool. So let's talk about some of the strains that you're running because uh, like I mentioned, we got to meet in Oklahoma. You came out to Coffee and Donuts and like I mentioned, you really kind of blew us away with some of your turps. The cheesequake, especially, it was definitely a standout to not only myself, but a bunch of the other people that were there. So let's dissect it a little. How long have you been growing the cheesequake? I've had cheesequake right around probably eight, nine years. It's been a standard in my garden for sure. I grew it for flower early on just because it was, it grew a beautiful, beautiful flower that was heavy, heavy had heavy medicinal effects to it. It really, everybody loved it. So it was, it was a star of the show before even I washed it for the first time, just because everybody loved smoking it. But yeah, then I threw it in the water. And uh, after that, I just, I basically washed it for the, for the past six years, just over and over again. I don't even grow up for flour anymore. It just gets turned into, into hash. That's part of what you told me that, really piqued my interest is that you had been growing it before you were making hash. And then it's like one of your main ones still. So luckily it washed and, and those terps held up in the water. Do you feel like there's a translation from the flower 
to the hash that's pretty similar, for example, in the terpenes? Yeah, I do, definitely. But I think that you can get a better idea of the terpenes in the hash. I think you can get a better flavor and also be able to, I guess, get different flavors out of the hash based on wash cycles and micron sizes and stuff like that versus the flower is just going to give you one overall experience. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, we were just talking about that before we started the interview, funny enough, which was the unique ability of sifting, whether it's wet or dry or sieving, I guess, in this case, to be able to separate these trichomes, not only by size, but like I was saying, because of the size in in part two, but the types of trichomes as well. And their maturity or their ripeness, however you want to look at that. So it is pretty intriguing because one of the first times that I tried this cheesecake of yours, it was in a jam form. And you were telling me that in the jam, it's usually the later washes that go into that, as opposed to some of your cold cure, it's usually your first wash only. And that you find that even between that, there's differences in the profile itself. Yeah. So just recently I've been doing first washes just on cheesequake specifically. So I separate just the first wash and then I usually put the two, three and fourth wash together for the jam. And I've noticed that that cold cure first wash product has a different terpene profile than the second through fourth, the jam product. It's just probably, it's a little bit more floral on the nose to me, the, the cold cure is, but something's going on with the jam that makes it like, it's really good. It's, it's just a little bit different. It's hard to say specifically like what the differences are. There's, there's, the differences are subtle in them, but they, they are, there are differences for sure in the flavors. So it's really interesting to, to be able to play with the different washes and the different consistencies because I'm pulling different products with different flavors and, and that out of the same material that I'm starting with. So that, that to me is really interesting. Is this not something that you do with other strains? Did you say this is specifically with the cheesecake that you started doing this? So I have done jams with all my other strains that I make hash with, except I don't think that they're as good as the jam that cheesequake makes. I think that they are like the peanut butters and the trap kush. They're better in a cold cure product themselves versus where the jam, where you take it with the jam. And then it's not as good as the cold cure. Basically, I guess that's what I'm really trying to say um, with the peanut butters and the other ones. So I, I just think that the jam works really well with cheesequake and it doesn't work with the other strains that I have right now as well. Right. So you've gone through the R&D of doing it through all of them. You've just decided to continue doing it with the cheesecake because you feel that's the one that works best. And actually, it's almost beneficial to turn it into a jam. Yes, it tastes better. And it's almost, it is almost beneficial because you're getting different effects. So, And I haven't made jam with the Point Break or the Mimosa yet. So those are still on the list for the R&D. But with the peanut butters and the trap kush, I just felt like it just wasn't creating the 
standard of product that I'm trying to create. I, I think it kind of degraded it a little bit where the cold gear was superior for sure. And you so said, I'll just stick with a cold gear for those ones. Yeah. And you said the cheese quake also just has the proper kind of resin that crystallizes quickly and well and whatever else goes into making a good jam. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. The, the cheese quake, it works like within 12 hours, it, it crystallizes and is almost ready to go. And the other jams take, take longer than that for sure by a number of days, but cheesequake's almost immediate. It, and so there's something to that too. Just the transference of like crystals like overnight. Yeah. I mean, that's a considerable difference if you're saying this one does it in 12 hours and then the other ones take multiple days. Yeah. So that right there was telling me that there's something special about this jam product. And then just the overall reaction that, that I get in the jar with the cheesequake is, is different than what happens with the peanut butters. So it's, it's fun to play around with. And it's interesting to me to try to figure out the best product for sure. The best way to make it. Yeah. And you refer to it as a medicinal strain. And you mentioned to me that there's a patient who has access to both the cold cure and the jam and that the jam actually was giving them some kind of relief that the cold cure wasn't. Yep. I have um, a patient that is using both of them and he swears that the jam is giving him stomach relief. I think it's pain. I don't know exactly what it is, but he's getting specific relief from the cheesequake jam that he's not getting from the cold cure. So that's huge. That's interesting. I agree. Yeah, it, it is interesting to see that one form of the same variety is giving him a physiological effect that the other one isn't. Yep, and it's the same material. It's the same exact starting material. So we're just changing it along the way. So that, that's what makes it so interesting. So I think one of the coolest things about that cheese cake, at least for me, is just the profile on it. Since you're much more familiar with it than I am, how would you describe it? Cheesequake to me is um, grapes and gas. It's like sweet, but super stony and gassy. Yeah. And you also mentioned earlier, I think in regards to the cold cure, which I agree with you, it, to me, it has this like perfume-like thing going on to it as well. So I think what makes it so cool is that it does have all these different notes to it. And I was trying to remember, like, there's this cheese that I've tried from All Greens uh, in Denver. Shout out Snarf Sash. But it has some similar characteristics to it where it, like, has this perfumey, almost cheesy-like thing going on. But... I feel like the cheesequake even hits more notes. So do you happen to know, for example, how many terpenes are present in it? I don't know exactly how many are. It was tested a number of years ago, like two years ago. And the highest terp was definitely caryophylline. That was, that was the majority of it. I think there was like two or three other terps in it. Okay, cool. And this is a plant that one of basically your homies found and it's kept kind of in a small circle up there in Northern Michigan, right? Yeah, this was found from a seed from um, a couple of guys that I started growing with. 
And uh, yeah, we've definitely just had a agreement between each other just to keep it within our circle of not to, you know, give it away or sell the cuts or anything like that. Just because we all, we all knew how special the plant was from the beginning. So we all grow it in our own gardens and we all love it. But yeah, it's only with a, a small group of people, you know, three or four guys got it. Yeah. And like I said last time, it's pretty impressive that after six to eight years, you guys are still growing it and you're the only guy washing it. And I asked you why, and you said that you feel like it's probably because you're the one who's most passionate about hash. So again, kind of going back to the question I asked you earlier, why is it so fascinating to you to isolate trichomes? Basically, yeah, it comes back to the first question. I was just wanted a better quality concentrate that I was happy with, that I was happy with sharing with people. And that was very important to me then. It still is today. So I think that that's probably the difference in why I'm the only guy out of us that washes it. And it just comes down to a lot of extra work and time that you have to really put into washing and processing. And I wasn't scared of that work or anything from the beginning. I was like, whatever it takes, I'm going to put in this work and try to like isolate this and try to make this the best hash that I, you know, that I possibly can. So it was just a inherent passion from the very beginning. I think that probably sets the difference between the, uh, me and the other guys. And you said this is one of the early strains you washed that you actually had success in, but you had been washing a lot of the other material that you were growing, maybe the byproduct of it, for example, your trim or whatnot, to try to learn the ice and water process. Yeah, definitely. I started with wash and trim and lowers and then moving on to dry cured uh, nug and then slowly transferring over to whole plant fresh frozen and trying to, uh, to figure that out. So do you feel like it's important for you as a hash maker to have gone through this process of kind of gradually getting to fresh frozen? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Everything that I've done has definitely been just learning, learning experience, understanding it, trying to get it to a better outcome. So all of that, all of the mistakes and all of that stuff has definitely led me to a better understanding of what I'm doing today, for sure. And making those mistakes and taking those losses on my own, it's, that's a really good lesson. You don't, you, you don't want to make those mistakes again once you lose a bunch of material or what, whatever it is. So I definitely think that the journey is very important to where I'm at right now. And what made you want to start doing whole plant fresh frozen? Flavor. Terps trying to get a better tasting product, a better quality product, something that was had a better color. And it was just kind of where the hashing was moving. So once I started learning about it, I was just definitely like, well, I'm going to mess with this and try to figure this out. And at first, I wasn't very successful. My first couple of runs, I wasn't very successful with it. But just research and development and trial and error dial it in and that's all I wash today. Like I don't I don't wash anything cured. So it's all fresh frozen. 
that I pull out of my gardens today. Yeah, like you said, you've shifted your entire garden basically just for washing now. Yep, everything is, I'm just farming for resin right now. I'll keep a little bit of flower here and there just for a couple patients that still want the flower. And I, and I enjoy smoking joints once in a while too, but primarily it's, it's all uh, for hash. And when you were first washing some of that early material, how quickly did you understand that not everything was going to wash? Probably pretty quick. Right away, I was taking losses and putting material in and just getting really low returns or the, pro- the returns weren't qu- the quality that I was looking for. So, yeah, I, I think I learned pretty quick that you have to put the right material in in order to get the results out that you're looking for. Was that something that you were aware of before you started washing? Not really, no. That was definitely something I learned along the way. Tell us about one of your early washes where you ended up draining the bags overnight. Yeah, I think that that was probably one of my first washes where I got to the last bag, my 25U, and I'm just sitting there like, why is this thing not draining? What, what's going on here? It's just sitting here. And I think I left it, I left it hanging like overnight just so it would slowly drain. And then you just get to the bottom of it. And nowadays I don't even run a 25 bag. So it's just funny to look back and look at some of the, um, the problems that I had in the early days, but it's all for the, the benefit of understanding it now. You don't really even need the 25 bag. So. And in comparison to how long you were washing then, what's a wash look like now? A wash is basically about, an, I mean, I don't really know to compare. I mean, I, I have a whole process now to where when, I, when I'm in the room and when I'm washing. Back then, I was basically just like, it was just, you know, you're just throwing shit together and you're just trying to, to, to do it the best, you, you know, you don't know what you're doing, really. Today, it's definitely more um, organized and dialed in for sure. So going back to the cheese squeak and breaking up the first wash and the second through fourth, I think you said, how long is that first wash? So my first wash is like four to five minutes. And are you seeing, for example, in that cheese squeak, trichomes falling in different ranges between that first one? And some of the later ones? Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. I'm getting the majority of the return is coming in that first wash. I would say like 50, 60% of the return is in the first wash. From that 50% in that first wash, what are you typically seeing like micron wise? I'm getting a lot of like the 90, the 120, basically. That's the majority of the head size is right within that, that uh, spectrum. Okay. And then in the later washes, are they falling in a similar spectrum as well? Yeah, I would say that they're still falling heavier in those spectrums for sure in the later washes. Can you notice just in the washes themselves, for example, different aromas coming off some of those first and later washes? Well, I I wear a respirator when I make hash, but I can still definitely smell the hash through the respirator so it's like i'm wearing a big like big face mask but you can still 
definitely. I'm still over overwhelmed by the Terps in the air for sure. Now, I mean, I wouldn't say overwhelmed, but it's still, I can still definitely smell it through, through that. But the specifically, the specific uh, different terpene variants, I can't really determine, no. And just as a side note, the respirator you use almost to keep from being oversaturated with terps or like asthma or something? Yep, I have asthma, so it helps me definitely breathe when I'm making hash. Is that something that you kind of added to your process over time? Did you figure that out? Yeah, it's kind of funny. Honestly, I made hash without it for a couple of years. And then just recently within the last two years, I've noticed like just in stirring buckets and spray in the overall, like spraying the bags and stuff like that, I was losing my breath and I was having a hard time breathing. So I don't know exactly what it is or what it was, um, but I know that I started wearing a respirator for sure. And I had to, I honestly, like I can't make hash without wearing a respirator or I just can't breathe. Yeah. I've seen quite a few people using them, uh, including the homie from mission Hill melts because he also, I believe has some type of asthma. So it's interesting to see. And especially in your case where, like I told you last time, I feel like you have a great flow that you've developed in between your garden and your washroom and you're basically almost like at a 50 50 split so you're in the washroom a good amount so you know it's not like you're doing it every once in a while no yeah i'm i'm in there um consistently daily so it whenever i'm washing i'm definitely wearing a mask i don't wear a mask to like press or anything like that but definitely in the cold room for sure yeah so let's talk a little bit about this flow because it's kind of nice that you're able to essentially use half your days to dedicate to the garden and then half your days to dedicate to either washing or pressing because you are single source, but you're able to do the whole process throughout every day. Yeah, I am single source and it's just me working my garden in my hash room. So it is, it's basically broke. My days broke down into gardening um, the morning, getting the chores done. And then transfer over into the cold room or the press room to where, you know, you're making hash or you're making rosin or you're washing or you're prepping fresh frozen. But yeah, I basically set my gardens up so that I'm consistently busy and I can have consistent product coming. So every two weeks is basically a harvest for me. Very, I mean, I'm small and micro batch. Like I literally harvest like eight plants every two weeks. That means I'm I'm freezing them, I'm washing them, and transferring, and then pressing, and and then flipping that room over to get it ready for the next harvest. So it's constant work every day. But I mean, I love it. But it's it's basically full tilt single source work for sure. Yeah, that's again something we talked about last time a little bit, and that single source seems pretty straightforward of a term, but. There are some variations into how it can be interpreted, especially in, in hash making. But yeah, in your case, you're just, you're doing everything and you're doing it pretty efficiently. It seems like, and I was asking you last time, how long do you feel like it's taken for you to get into this rhythm? So, the, I mean, and I'm still dialing in my, my hash process every day. If there's something that I can feel that I can do better or more efficiently. I mean, I'm changing it up, whether it's like 
organizing the room differently or just the flow of things. So tell me about some of these chores, you called them, that you take care of every day on the cultivation side. Chores, garden chores, man. um, There's always defoliating or watering or lollipopping or cloning. You just run in the garden in general. And when you do it on multiple stages, like I'm doing, on, even on a small scale, it just creates a constant work. Just like every week, there's, there's a transplant or there's you know, clones to be cut. So there's definitely a, a good amount of chores to, uh, to take care of in the garden. Yeah, I'm sure, man. That's a lot of upkeep, it seems like. And like you said, having them all kind of separated at different stages, I'm sure creates a variety of work throughout the week. Yeah. It, it's mainly just about staying organized and making sure that you're cutting your clones on time and your, your, your room's ready to transfer over and cut down. And when it, the other ones are transplanted, when this one's ready to harvest. So it basically just boils down to a lot of organization and prep work and just trying to stay ahead of it. Always staying busy. That's for sure. It, it doesn't let up. <laughs> Yeah, so tell us a little bit about what a typical uh, room looks like for you. Um, yeah, it would be basically uh, tables, trays, trellis. And then I really like monocrops, but like I said, when I, where I harvest, um, I'm trying to pull a couple different flavors. So I usually do two, two different crops per table. So I have two different um, canopy sizes. But yeah, that's basically it. I mean, it's nothing crazy, but it... Definitely, uh, it works. Yeah, you mentioned that to me before in that you don't like having more than two varieties in one room because it just creates too many, I guess, maybe issues you could call them with the canopy. Yeah, just like different levels on the canopy, basically. Um, Each strain has their own characteristics of how tall they're going to get or how much they're going to stretch. So you would really want to put cheesequake in a room with like mimosa because cheesequake doesn't stretch mimosa definitely stretches so one would just like tower over the other one basically so but yeah something that you're definitely accounting for when you're choosing which ones go in with the other ones yes definitely i'm trying to keep level canopies and i mean even if i had i could create some cheesequakes up if i had to like make them a little bit taller something like that but yeah those are definitely things i'm thinking of when i'm arranging the rooms getting them set and cutting clones for the next rip. Let's talk about your growing medium a little because you told me you've been using a similar setup from the very beginning. What does it consist of? Yeah, I run salts and soil. It's kind of, that's how I learned. That's how I've been successful with gardening. So that's basically the, you know, it had, it's not broke, so don't fix it. Um, I'm not having any issues with food or growing or terpenes or anything like that. So I've basically been pretty happy with salt and soil. But I'm definitely very interested in some living soil and trying to uh, do a future collab with the close homie uh, Fueled by Full Mount. He, he runs living soil beds. And so we're going to do a little collab where he's going to run like a peanut butter in his room. And then we're going we're gonna to wash it and try to see and then test the terps against, you know, what I'm doing. So we can see if like the terp 
if they really do increase. So it's a good test to run something that we already know the genetics that, that do work in the salts. So by soil and salts, you mean that your medium that the plants are in is soil, but that you're feeding them with salts? Yes. Yep. The medium is like a super soil. And yep, I use salt-based nutrients. Do you feel like over these last, let's say, eight to 10 years, you've been able to dial it in better? Um, the growing side of it? Yes. So I'm pretty much doing the, um, the same style of growing, feeding the same, same way, doing my soil recipes similar, very, I mean, very similar as I was like eight, eight, 10 years ago. I pretty much haven't changed that up very much at all, really. Uh, the one variables that I have changed up would probably be lighting. I switched over from HPS to some LEDs, some Gavitas, stuff like that. Those have definitely given me different results that I've seen in the grow rooms, more so than the food that I'm using. So let's talk about some of the different things you've seen with the different lightings. Yeah, the LEDs are tight, man. They are uh, low heat. They're super bright. They grow beautiful, beautiful flowers. I really like the LEDs that I've, that I've switched over in the past couple of years. But I, I still do grow with HPS as well. I still have uh, Gavita rooms. And I still really like the terps that are coming out of those rooms. I still really think that the terps that I'm pulling out of the HPS are probably a little bit louder than the LED at this point. Um, I'm still doing the research on it. I'm still definitely doing side-by-sides and trying to determine it, but there's a lot of benefits to LEDs for sure. And I'm not giving up on them at all yet, but I am hunting and trying to harvest the best terps. So if there's something that's going to give me a better flavor, I'm going to lean towards that every day. So, yeah, I found it interesting that the Gavita rooms were producing what you find to be louder terps compared to the LED. But you did say that the LED resin is a really beautiful resin and that it's pretty terpy as well, but not quite as terpy. Yeah, I think if you didn't have the side by sides to do the nose test on, it might just get lost. Like nobody would ever really notice because it's not like crazy different it's just a little there's a little bit of a of a louder turp and like i said the the leds are still phenomenal it's creating phenomenal resin so it's very very good but yeah my next step is probably going to be doing a room with uh, leds and hps so i can try to uh see if that'll solve the issue yeah so doing almost like a mixed light spectrum type thing yep exactly Yeah, well, that'll be cool to see the results. So have you ran things, for example, in the LED room that you're going to run in the Gavita room and vice versa to kind of compare those terps? Yeah, all the strains basically get run through both. But yeah, it'll be interesting to to mix the spectrums together in the same space and try to uh, increase the terps that way. Yeah, another thing that did stick out was that you said that the led rooms actually ran a little warmer and you were having to add more humidity in there is that what it was 
Yeah, I actually found I run my those rooms a little bit more humid, a little bit warmer, and I honestly feed a little bit more. So I've just noticed that those little changes from switching over to those lights, those are just a couple little changes that I've made that I found I'm growing a little bit better resin that way. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. Well, man, I think it'd be a good opportunity for a first smoke break. You down? Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. Shout out to our homies and main sponsors, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. It's been really cool seeing a small independent cannabis brand like Rosin Evolution grow over the last few years. The Hashishin platform has grown with them and wouldn't be possible without their support. They've also given back and shown a lot of support to the rest of our small community. You'll see them as sponsors at a ton of educational series around the nation, which is inspiring to see in itself, to see the knowledge spreading. So if you make rosin, whether you're learning or you're on the press daily and you want to support a company who gives back to the community, provides you high quality products and fantastic customer service, then visit Rosin Evolution at rosinevolution.com where you can find everything you need to make rosin, including rosin and wash bags. And if you use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710, it saves you 5%. It supports the podcast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the episode. So tell me why you got into cultivating initially. Making my own meds, growing my own weed. I love smoking. Uh, I love really good, good flower. And basically that was it. That was the incentive right out of the gate was just being able to cultivate for yourself. Basically it right there. And like I mentioned earlier, you're a caretaker working under the medical model. Do you feel like it's been a pretty easy going system to work under? Yeah, I'm a caregiver in Michigan's medical uh, marijuana program. And yeah, the caregiver system in Michigan is really easy to navigate and to be a part of. It's five patients that you're allowed to caregive for. Each patient has 12 plants that you're able to cultivate for them. So a total of 72 plants is what I'm allowed to personally have. Yeah, which like I told you last time, I feel like is almost a baseline for you because that's the amount that you've had from the very beginning of your cultivating career up until now because of how the model is set up. So I'd be interested to hear how the experience of growing the same amount of plants in a variety of settings over the years has changed for you. Uh, well, from the beginning, it, I didn't have it as organized as what I did. So I wasn't as successful with my turnarounds and my harvest. But once I got that dialed in and organized for these 72 plants, it's pretty simple. And it, it's really, it hasn't changed much in the later, in the last few years, just because it, I have it dialed in for my space and for my gardens and just for my work, basically. And do you remember what were some of the early varieties that you were running? Oh man. Yeah. Uh, I think I was running like some jelly bean, 
some BC bud sour candy. I think was one of them blue cheese, blue dream, green crack. There's a lot of old school ones, but yeah, I mean, there's been, there's been a number of, uh, varieties that I've grown and let go over the course of my growing career. Yeah. It's funny to hear some of those names and, I, I know at least the jelly bean was also a TGA genetic, which the cheese creek is as well, which I told you was funny to me because some people that I've spoken to who have washed stuff kind of earlier on, you know, TGA wasn't necessarily a, a breeder you go to for washing material, albeit they weren't breeding for washing, but you never know where you're going to be able to find a winner. So it's interesting to hear that like, all the other ones are gone, but the cheesequake remains. Yeah, there's something special about cheesequake that I've definitely never been able to let that one go for anything. It's an interesting plant for sure. And have you worked both from seed and from cuts? Um, yeah, I pheno hunt all the time. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly on a never-ending pheno hunt, um, just hunting for new flavors. I dedicate a small space in my garden for hunting. So I, I'm just basically doing like one to two packs at a time. But it's difficult to find good hashers and good terps. So it's definitely a constant, constant uh, never-ending game for sure. The, the hunt, the pheno hunt. So it's not, it's still something I can't see I'm going to be done with anytime soon. I definitely have packs of seeds in reserve right now that for the next one and the next one after that. But I don't take a lot of cuts just because I'm trying to keep my gardens as clean as possible. I'm not trying to bring in any outside problems. But I have taken cuts from people, from trusted gardeners a couple times over the course of the years. But I typically, nine out of 10 times won't do that unless it's something exceptionally special and I can put a lot of trust that I'm getting it from a clean garden. And when you do bring in cuts, which is rare, what's the procedure for bringing them into your garden? Uh, There's an isolation space that I like to put them in at first. And then basically it's just transitioned in after I, after I grow up for a little bit and I don't, I can't find any problems with it. Then I, then I'll just move it in. But that comes with a lot of reassurance from the source that I got it from too. There's a lot of trust there because I, I would never just take cuts from like a random clone seller or anything like that. Yeah. You've told me that you've been really fortunate in being able to keep your garden super healthy throughout the years. And one of your main practices is pretty straightforward and that you don't let anyone into the gardens outside of yourself. Yeah, I don't. It's just been kind of a rule that I've always had is, especially people that garden themselves. I mean, they can carry bugs or carry problems or even on their shoes or anything like that. So you just have to be really careful. I mean, I don't even go into my gardens until after I change and put on different clothing and stuff like that from even the grocery store. So it just, it just comes down to taking the extra time just to not jeopardize things, I guess. Yeah. And another practice that obviously helps is you seem to be pretty keen on cleaning and 
cleaning pretty often and you have a checklist that you go through when, for example, you're flipping a room over, what are some of those things that you focus on? Yeah, man, it's always, there's always cleaning to happen for sure. If you're going to be a gardener, you got to be a janitor too. Do you go as far as like, for example, scrubbing down walls and stuff in between cycles? Yeah, absolutely. Everything's cleaned. Everything's clean. Bulbs are replaced. Hoods are replaced. Fans are replaced if they're too bad. But yeah, everything, the walls get scrubbed down. The floors get scrubbed down. Filters get reset. It's a whole production of stuff that needs to be flipped over and reset so that you can have another successful clean rip. Yeah. So like I said, you've been able to keep plant health at an optimum level in your gardens, which like you and many other people have said is super important to growing great resin, but you did have a small incident recently where one of the rooms hermed a bit. Was that your pheno hunt room? Yeah. Yep. It was. I basically will sex my pheno hunt room out before I flower it. And in this case, I missed a herm and yeah, it went into the flower room and, uh, I got seeds. <laughs> so it wasn't anything crazy. It was, you know, it wasn't like heavy, heavy seeds by any means, but it was, yeah, it was definitely one of those things where a mistake happened and luckily it wasn't that serious. And at the end of the day, I haven't seeded anything out to wash before. So this is going to be kind of new to wash this stuff with seeds in it to see if there's any difference there. I haven't done that yet. so. It's going to be interesting to see the um, the end result, if it's the same or different or whatever it is. Yeah, this is something that you and I talked about at length a couple times. It's just the fact that even these instances where you do have something not ideal happen, in this case, for example, getting some of it seeded, there is something to learn. And you told me that doing this R&D, whether it's intentional or not in this case, is really important to being able to develop your craft. And you seem to be really into your craft. So tell me what you feel learning from these mistakes, like you said earlier, brings to you. Yeah, learning from this mistake is just like, well, I mean, the herm didn't really happen until like week four or five. So that's that's kind of tricky to, to catch something in that stage. But that's kind of how it goes with the herms. But it created an opportunity for me to wash some product that has seeds in it that I've never done before. So I'll be able to, um, you know, learn a little bit from it and see if it's has any difference in it or if I haven't, if I don't find any difference. So I guess it's just having the experience to learn a little bit more. That's basically the, it created an opportunity that now I can just learn a little bit more from it. Yeah. It's a, obviously a bit of a costly mistake, but there is that learning lesson there, which is good. <laughs> yeah, it is a, it is a little bit of a costly mistake, but if the resin does transfer over into hash and it's not, and there's ain't nothing wrong with it, then it's probably not as bad of a mistake if I was going to have to move that flower, move that product as flower. Because that, I mean, right there, you're, you have seeds in it and that's, that's a problem for the end user. So 
it's interesting. It's just kind of an, an interesting uh, change to see like if this is going to be, um, you know, a, a, as big of a problem or not. Yeah, I agree. And I agree that by washing it, it changes the dynamic in the sense that, yeah, you, you don't have to focus on the flower itself and on it being seeded so much, but more on the quality of the resin and maybe how it affects the yield. And I've talked to a few other people about this, but yeah, you wonder how much change there is when a plant gets seeded versus not that energy is then being used to create seed. Otherwise it would be likely used to produce resin. So is that resin any better per se? Who knows at this point really, but yeah, to see what, what comes of it. Yeah, exactly. Personally, if a flower has seeds in it and I'm breaking it up to like roll a joint, I personally feel that you can kind of taste that a little bit. It's not the full experience of that flower without the seeds, like that flavor profile, like it's, just, it's hindered a little bit. So it's a degraded product in my eyes a little bit. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if, if I, you know, if the hash comes with a degraded flavor or uh, lower yields or something like that. And what strain was that just out of curiosity? That was Trop Kush 7. That was a different Trop Kush. Okay, and that's by Oni as well? That is by Oni, yes. And that Trop Kush, not this number 7, but the one that you have in your stable now, that's the one seed that you found that is currently one of your washers, correct? Yes, so I found that one. And I, I was just re-hunting the rest of that pack. So that's where another pheno came through. And yeah, that's where the herm came in. Trying to find a different cultivar of that Trop Kush from Oni. Right. Yeah, it definitely seems to be kind of a risk, especially in some of these genetics that are now almost quote-unquote meant for hash. Uh, instability or Hermes definitely seem to be something that comes up pretty regularly and to different degrees, like you said, this one came in pretty late. So it is interesting to see to what degree that affects the genetic lines of people trying to hunt through these genetics to find right. washers. Yeah. And, and I mean, I like, I've already found a trap Kush, you know, that I, I can pretty, I can get like, you know, over 5% with that one, but, like I said, it, it's difficult to find hashers. And when I found that one, I absolutely wanted to hunt the rest of the pack just because the potential of hashers in that pack. And then there could be a different turp in there. You know, I could, I could find a, that Trop Kush 7 could have had a completely different nose on it than the number 10. So the one that you have currently that you're growing out, what is that profile like? Since you have told me that the terps are the most important thing when looking for a hasher, in your opinion? Um, my Trop Kush 7 is, I would say, like 80% Kush on the nose versus like the 20% Trop. It's, very, it's low on the Trop end of it, which to me is exactly what I was looking for, just having other Trop profiles in my stable. So having something that was more cushy was what I really liked about it. So. That, that to me was, it was definitely more cush than chop on that. 
And for example, on that plant that has been like your one keeper for seed, what's the process after you grow it? What's the process of figuring out if it's a keeper in the washroom or not for you? A yield, basically. If it's getting to the washroom, it's already because I've selected it for its terp. So I already really like the terp profile. If I'm growing like anything in the pheno hunt room that doesn't have a nose on it that's preferred, isn't going to even make it into the cold room. There might be some really fire flower coming out of there that I could, you know, hand down to a different grower or somebody that's growing for flower or something that's, you know, needs two more weeks to run. I can give it away. But basically, if, if it's not hitting the nose, then it's not going to make it into the cold room. So when I'm out there, I'm basically just looking for yields. So the ones that don't make it into the washroom, what happens to those? They get let go. I mean, or if there's something really fire that's like super fire flower, doesn't have the nose on it. I mean, I would just give it to a homie for him to grow it out and keep it around. And you said that's actually much more common to find flower genetics that are stellar compared to ones that are stellar, not only on the nose, but in the washroom as well. Yeah, yeah. It's easier to find pretty flower. And and there's also a lot, you can get really good terps with, you know, a lot of the flowers too, but I'm, I'm hunting for like unique terps. I'm hunting for something that's special. So there's a lot of like average terps out there that you can find on these, these hunts that I would just let go basically because it's not hitting enough boxes. It's not checking enough boxes for me. So at this point, what's a unique terp to you? And that might be kind of a hard thing to put into words, but. Kind of, but. I mean, I like a blend right now. I like the gas for sure. I want, I want the gas, but I do like it when there's a fruity blend in there. So I think that, that that's kind of what I'm hunting for right now. Something that's got maybe like the fruitier fronts, but that does have the gas and the power on the back of it. Yeah. We discussed this last time and I brought up the fact that people, you know, post, whether people are into potency or flavor and they do like a either or kind of thing. And we both talked about how it's nice to have a 50, 50 where, you know, you're getting a little bit of both worlds and getting the power, like you said, but also getting that nice flavor. Yeah. I think it's important for the experience. Definitely not just to get something that tastes really good, but also something that is going to medicate you at the end of the day. I mean, that's really what we're trying to do too. So I think that the strong and the gas is important to have in there. So let's talk about another variety that you have in your arsenal right now, which are your peanut butter breasts. I believe the six and the seven. What can you tell us about them? Yeah, the peanut butters are fire. A really close homie of mine that grows really good weed. Uh, he found those ones. He actually found four different phenos that were really good from one pack of seeds. And I was blessed. He blessed me and got me a couple cuts of it. And uh, it transfers over. They both, they both washed really well. And they both create phenomenal, phenomenal hash. So one isn't better than the other one in my eyes. They're both just so good that it's, it, there would be no way for me to give one of them up. They're both, they both have unique profiles on their own. The number six has a little bit more power in the strength side of it, but number seven has just an unbelievable like profile 
it just it it cracked the jar and it stinks up the whole room. So both of those are um, two of my favorites to smoke on for sure. I love washing and growing both of those strains. Yeah, I've tried the seven a couple times now. I actually that's what I puffed on during our smoke break and. It really is phenomenal. So like I told you, I've been curious to try the six as well. But the seven you told me has something like eight different terpenes in it or something? Yeah, it was tested with eight different terps versus the six had four. So you can really tell if you just were to crack the jar for sure. It, it has such an expressive um, nose on it. And it's just, it's a super wet, wet resin, super sticky, wet resin. You said that's the one that basically is kind of like the wettest looking resin that you have. Yeah, that's definitely the stickiest, wettest, most delicate resin that I work with. I need to make sure that my space is very, very cold. It's going it, to, I mean, if you don't have it under 30 degrees or right around 30 degrees, like it's going to gum up in your bag the heads are going to break open and you got to be really, really fast with that one. I love it. I love the terps that it, it is, but it's definitely one of the most challenging resins that I work with just based on how fast you got to be with it, how cold it's got to be. And if it's not cold, it's not cold enough, then you're going to, you're going to hurt in the yield. It just won't drop as much, but it is, it's a, it's a fun one to work with for sure. Is this a six or the seven that you're talking about? This is number seven. Number seven is the melty one. And do you feel like having a difficult resin to work with like that, even in a really cold temperature, has upped your game, for example, in the washroom just in general? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's definitely an advanced resin to wash, for sure. You can mess it up. You can lose it right away it's tricky. So like, I've definitely taken some L's. I've definitely taken some, some lower yields and I've learned like what to do and what not to do with it. So it's just, it's made me a more like universal hash maker, it, you know? So I'm more comfortable if I were to like find another really sticky, melty resin like that. I feel like I'm more comfortable in, in washing it and processing it. And what do the six and seven yield respectively kind of average so they're right around the same it's right it's about four and a half percent in the rosin four to four and a half percent to rosin okay cool yeah and we talked about this last time in that when you are talking about percentages you're using the percentages to reference basically your a grade rosin yep yep that's my um you're right dude yes a grade rosin i can't even think of a better way to put it yeah <laughs> so because I don't really have a B grade or a C grade like they're literally just like you know um, my A grade and then it will have a food grade but my food grade is still phenomenal like in my eyes <laughs> so what do you do with your food grade so right now my food grade is just getting um, made into capsules I make it into uh, a just a jar of rosin and then I decarb it and then I add MCT oil basically so Full solventless capsules. Funny enough, we were just talking about this during the break. I believe that you said you've been taking these capsules at night and that you've been dabbing less because of them. Yeah, absolutely. Def definitely taking a capsule later in the day is going to 
lead to less trips to the bong. That's for sure. That's what I've uh, found out. <laughs> you're just you're just more medicated, and you're less likely to, you know, have that urge to go and uh, fire up a dab. So it's just it's given me. I like to dab during the day and then kind of like take a cap at night and just kind of chill out. Oh yeah. I told you I've also been taking caps at night and it does something similar for me too, where I'm able to just chill out and feel good, but you know, take less dabs. So likewise, I'll take more throughout the day and then towards the evening, it'll be more cap based. Yeah. Less dabs is the goal. I think at the end of the day, if, especially if I've been kind of been like smoking oil all day long. And then also I found that they kind of help me sleep a little bit better too. I'm kind of getting a little bit more of a restful or restless night's sleep. So I've been liking that too. So not to, you know, get too much into it, but typically what do you consume on, on a daily basis? Just like one capsule. Is that what you mean? No, I'm in regards to dabs, I guess. Oh, like how much am I smoking? Yeah. I'd probably go through about a gram a day. That's pretty conservative. I mean, yeah, I mean, about a gram a day. And maybe maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, depending on the day. But uh, Right, give or take. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, likewise. I'm, I think, right around that. I'm always curious to know you know, what people, some people consume a lot more, some people consume way less. So it's always interesting to kind of see what the makers are smoking themselves. Yeah, I think I do like 0.2 dabs. So I mean, even, you know, even do five, six dabs a day, that's already a gram right there. So. So let's go back to the peanut butter breath a little, going back to the idea that you've, that you've done the R and D with a lot of your strains, if not all of them almost. The peanut butter breath, why have you decided to keep it as a cold cure? So I've done that one in jams too. I just don't think that it is that great of a product in the jam versus the cold cure. I think the cold cure is better. And I've had definitely patients and people that are smoking it. They prefer the cold cure to the jam on the peanut butter breath. But definitely not getting that response on the cheesequake. The cheesequake is getting people like both of them equally. So I think I'll definitely move forward and make more cheesequake jam in the future and just more of the cold cure on the peanut butters. So on the peanut butters, for example, since you're not separating out, for example, that first wash, what's the philosophy or what's going into the cold cure? So it would be the it would be the first through fourth wash, the seventy through one twenty, and then anything else above or below or like after fourth four washes would be a food grade product. Okay, and similar to the question that I asked you about the cheesequake, what micron sizes are you usually seeing in the peanut butter breath? Also the ninety to one twenty. Yes. Yep. Same. And since you've been running these varieties for a while have you ever seen for example a change from one run to another where you've seen for example a bigger pool in like the 70 versus the 90 or the 120 or vice versa um not specifically for anything other than like very like i guess like a cold variable that would be 
I would have, I found lower yields with peanut butter, like I just said, with when it's not as cold, I guess. But I'm pretty much pulling right, you know, right around the same, right around the same yields nowadays with these strains. They're pretty much dialed into where I'm getting, you know, similar results. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense if you're able to keep your environment and everything pretty on point, then I guess in theory, that's kind of how it should be, right? Yeah, it should be. It should. It's, it's tricky though. Just uh, little different variables can change the resin production, you know, just pulling it a couple days earlier or later, or maybe there were more stresses in the environment. Maybe there was, you know, heat stress or something like that, or that could, could have a difference in the outcome or, or the yield. So, but all of those things, like I, I try to pay attention to and try to uh, keep track of so that I can have a, you know, a good understanding of really like what's going on and, and why I would have like a half a percent or a full percent lower or more yield on like this specific wash versus like, you know, last months or something like that. So you do basically have almost like a log of data that you are able to reference. Yeah. Yeah. I keep track of, you know, my stuff and try to reference it back and try to understand the, what the different variables were that why I was getting different results. So yeah, that that's something that definitely always done. And I think it's important to the understanding and experimenting in this process. And in reference to the genetics that you're running, you said that for your system, and again, going back to how you have your room set up and harvesting these eight plants every two weeks that you like to have genetics that their kind of life term is about eight weeks or so. Yeah. So for my gardens, I like to have them set up where I'm tearing um, my crops down at, at eight weeks. It just, it fits like the schedule so that I can, I can, you know, have another rip right behind it and have it just ready to go. If, if I'm hunting something and, and it's not done at eight weeks, it, then I make the choice like, okay, like this is good, potentially fire. It's not for my garden, but like I'll get a hold of a homie, somebody that does have a garden that will run like longer cycles and stuff like that. I'm not just going to kill it if it's super fire. But yes, I'm typically, my gardens are set up for eight weeks. So a hypothetical, you find a terp that you love and it looks like a washer, but it's, 10 weeks. Can you keep it? So I haven't, <laughs> that'd be really tough because it's like, I like love, love a turp. Like I might have to like restructure a room to where it runs longer or something like that. Like I just haven't ran into that where there's something that I'm in love with, but even on something that even that's potential of being really good or just something unique, I wouldn't have a problem handing that off to a, a close homie or something like that. But it would take something very, very special for me to be for me to switch up kind of like how I have things organized right now. Right. Yeah, it definitely would change a lot of the things up, I think you'd have to almost kind of adjust around it. So I agree that was part of the reason of asking the question is just seeing, you know, how much your love for Terps would influence that decision. Yeah, I haven't I haven't had to make that choice yet. So. It would be difficult, definitely. So one of the things that I didn't bring up when we were talking about your rooms 
is that you still hand water everything. Why do you have that preference? Being on such a small scale that I'm on, it doesn't take me long to hand water. I honestly like it. It puts me in front of my plants. I get, you know, I'm looking at them. I'm paying attention to them, um, you know, daily or every other day versus, you know, setting up a whole room uh, and then watering it from the doorway and never really getting in there or having to crawl underneath or whatever. It just, I'm on my scale that I'm on. It works to hand water. It doesn't need to be automated. I can definitely see how like scaling up and going larger, it definitely needs to be automated. But from where I'm at, like I, I appreciate and I actually like hand watering. It doesn't bother me. And I'm able to uh, get a closer look at you know my plants daily. So would you say that that's important to keeping plant health? Yes. Yeah, the amount of time you take with your plants is absolutely important to uh, the health. If you're not, you know, taking care of it, defoliating it and lollipopping it when it needs to, um, it can overgrow and you can there's there's issues that you'll you can create that the time that you're in your garden is is important to me. So like, I just on my scale, I, I I really like being in there and keeping an eye on things and making sure that if there is an issue, like I can try to get a hold, get ahead of it and try to uh, figure it out before it becomes a big problem. Yeah, that makes sense. And going back to your LED room running a little hotter, do you have to water that a little more than your Gavita room? Um, Not necessarily. It's right about, it's right on the same schedule pretty much. Do you feel like it took you some time to develop a feel for how much to water? Were there any, I guess, overwatering problems kind of earlier in your cultivation career? Yeah, I definitely think that I was, when I first started, I believe I was underwatering a lot and hand watering. I mean, just watering that, watering the plants in general is, there's a little bit of an art to it. I mean, just knowing when to do it and when you're working, when you're working with the same genetics it gets dialed into the point where you, you just know ahead of time, like what day these specific, you know, strains are going to drink. But yeah, hand watering was a, was tricky at first and it can be, it can create lots and lots of issues. Like if you do it wrong. So doing it correctly is definitely a game changer. If you, you know, if you overwater specific strains, like if I were to overwater my cheesequake one time during the cycle, it's, it's stunted. And it would it basically take a week to get back. So, and but if I were to overwater a peanut butter breath, it would only take a couple of days. It's just every strain has its own set of characteristics and set of rules, basically. Yeah, I could see that, but I would also assume that that takes quite a bit of time of being around that same genetic and cultivating it for a while to really get a feel for that kind of small, subtle detail. Yeah, definitely. You got to have multiple rounds and multiple rips of it for, and regrow it for years, really. I mean, to really dial it, dial it in to the point to knowing exactly what each one wants. But that, that's kind of what I like that. I like that uh, aspect of, of working with the same genetics and getting to know them. So you, can, you do understand them on a different level of like than the new ones coming through. How often would you say that you add a new genetic 
it, it's hard to say because it's just like when they when they come, if I find if I find something that's good, it's going to get added in. But within the last year, I've put Point Break and Mimosa in into my lineup, and before that, it was probably two years that I had the peanut butters, and you know it was probably two years before that that I was just working with Cheesequake and like every other strain that I was washing originally that that really wasn't you know anything special but i was still trying to to wash it and figure it out do you feel like your hash or your rosin has got better as you've understood each of the genetics that you're working with yes yeah i think it gets it's getting better over time and just understanding the genetics makes it better too definitely knowing how, how to work the resin specifically just the little, the di- different little subtle changes that you have to make with them and temperatures or pressures or something like that. But definitely dialing it in makes you be able to get, you get more comfortable with it. So let's talk about the point break a little because you mentioned it and you said it's one of the newer ones you brought in. You told me the story about going in to your buddy's room and seeing quite a few different phenos that could have made the cut but you chose this one and going back to your point earlier of not really bringing in many cuts. Why did you make the decision to bring in the point break? Terps hundred percent. So I had a close buddy that hunted one pack from surfer from point break last year and he got nine keepers and, and keepers is hard to say, but he got nine phenos of it and they were all really, really good. So going into his room and looking at these phenos, I mean, it basically just came down to, we just went around and we're doing smell tests on all of them and trying to see what, what, what terp would do we like the best. And that's what was the determining factor was just like, okay, these, this, these two right here are our favorite terps out of them. So those are the ones that we'll wash first. And they were both really successful. I mean, they, they were over five, they did over 5% the first wash. So I didn't even go back and wash any more of the rest of his phenol hunt because we were so happy with the way that the one that we selected came out. And that's, that's where it came from. So just, that's another one that I got blessed, really lucky to have. It's very, very good. It's got a, um, it's like cherry, vanilla, uh, lemons. It's a creamy turf. It's, it's, it's a, it's a really good one. Everybody is really liking that one right now. So I'm excited to continue working with it and keep washing it, honestly. Yeah, you said that to me a couple of weeks ago when we spoke. You were like, I think you hadn't washed it at that point. And you were like, I'm really excited about that. And you said that that's one of the things that definitely keeps you kind of motivated in the space is just these new experiences of even being able to bring something new in and then seeing how it does in the washroom. In this case, I'm curious when you selected them you were doing it off live plants? Yes, we were selecting it off in a garden, like right off of uh, live plants that, you know, we would just walk up and just do like a, um, a finger rub to the, to the actual like sugar leaf. And that basically you, you clean your hands and you keep, you know, you go one to the next to the next. And it was just like, we both came to the one that we both liked. And it was just, it has that creamy, just uh really fruity really nice terp to it yeah that's that's where it came from man that's that's how it 
And there was a lot of, there was a lot of other really good Terps in that room too. So it was just, it was a really strange anomaly that like he found that many good ones right out of one pack of seeds that blew our minds. We're like, what is going on? Cause I mean, I've been hunting packs for years and it's, it's rare that you find anything or something that good. So definitely I, since then I've definitely, um, bought more surfer, surfer gear. I'm definitely hunting more of his uh, stuff. See what, see if I can find some more. Yeah, that's cool. I know people are always interested to see what other people are, are hunting through, through and definitely when they have success. So uh, I'm sure some people add that to their list as well, but uh, your friend, it cultivates specifically for flower mostly, right? Yeah, he just grows for flower. So, I mean, he definitely loves the hash and he makes a little bit of hash, but he's definitely, it's 95% of it is just cultivated for flower. Right. And it, it grew phenomenal flower. I mean, there was beautiful, beautiful colas. So it was, it, w- it checked those boxes too. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, going through a bunch of seeds yourself and, it not being easy to find a hasher. So in the case of, for example, the point break where you chose it based off the live plant, would you say one of the main challenges is finding resin that, for example, will keep a very similar profile through the wash and into the hash or the rosin, I guess, in this case, is that part of the challenge is that a lot of these profiles, even if they do wash, they lose that kind of uniqueness of that profile? Not really. I would say like, if the profile is there, you should be able to isolate it. You should be able to knock it off and it should come through. If you've had issues or you had problems, then yeah, you can mess that up along the way. But that's definitely my goal is I'm trying to like, if I, you know, I harvest at a specific time and I'm trying to isolate that turf that's on that plant at that time. And I mean, I'm pretty successful with that. I think I'm pretty successful with pulling those terpenes out of there and isolating them and, and pu- putting them in a jar. And how much would you say comes down to the genetics at this point versus, for example, the hash maker's skill to be able to do that? I mean, you have to have, the hash maker still needs to have skill for sure. And because there's a lot of ways that you can probably mess it up pretty easily, but it's probably 50-50. It needs to it needs to come off the plant, but it also needs to come through in the cold room too. Like it's got to come through on the hash makers. And you brought up the idea of having a window in which to harvest. You know, you used to grow for flower, and in the case of your friend who you got the point break from, he grows primarily for flower. So, in those instances, are you having to come in and make some adjustments even to those gardens to be able to get that material? to bring into your washroom and even test? I typically harvest right around the same time. So like I, if I was going to harvest for flower, I would cut on eight weeks. I'd cut on like day 56. Okay. Um, but with, with hash, I, de- I typically do the same thing, but I might harvest, you know, two, three days early. So I might pull on day like 53, 54, but that's about is the only difference in the time frame of when I'm going to harvest. I'm basically only going to pull it just a couple days earlier. I don't think I need, I would go any farther than that. And the same, I really don't run it any longer than that either. So it's right around, I'm basically pulling all my hash right in the same time time frame. Okay, cool. And are you using a loop to look at the resin? 
Oh uh, yeah, I have a microscope and I definitely um, study the the heads and the necks and look at all that. But I've also done that on like a researching scale to look at the look at the necks on the you know on seven weeks on on day fifty three um, all the way up until because I found that like playing with just a couple days of harvesting specific strains harvesting them a couple days early, like on day 53, I do reach, I do get a bigger yield. I do get a larger yield versus on day 56. So those little, those little changes that I've found definitely help my overall yield. And how have your practices changed from when you were bucking down for flour and now working with fresh frozen? Well, working with fresh frozen, you have to be really, really careful. I mean, there's heads on there that you could definitely just, you know, smash with your fingers or with scissors or just being not careful with it. So it's definitely a different process. Trimming for flour is definitely more aggressive. You're not thinking of it as the delicate process of prepping for fresh frozen. Prepping for fresh frozen is you got to be careful and you got to take your time and you're trying to preserve all those heads and bucket into the bag quick enough and efficiently. So there's a lot of other things I'm thinking about when I'm harvesting for fresh frozen that I never thought about harvesting for flour. And just like overall, just being careful and quick. It's not like you want a table of trimmers doing it, to be honest with you. Like you definitely need people. If, if somebody's going to be doing it, they need to understand the process and understand that being careful is probably just as important as being fast and getting the job done. So it's just, it's a delicate process for the fresh frozen, I guess I would say, versus like trimming is kind of just like hacking it up. And in the fresh frozen form, you said your ideal size is around a quarter size? Yeah, I would say like a dime to a quarter buds. Basically, you know, you, you're holding the stem and you're, you're popping these buds off from underneath. You're, you know, you're separating the entire cola basically. So you can expose more surface area. Yeah, we were talking about surface area earlier as well. And we were talking about the cheesequake you said is, I believe it's like your dentist bud. And then recently you washed some uh, Rambutan for your homie and you were saying the look of it wasn't necessarily the most appealing and that, that it didn't have the best bag appeal. And that funny enough, you're used to growing really beautiful flowers even though you exclusively grow for hash now you still look for flowers that look nice like you said even about the point break yeah the rambutan that i just washed was kind of funny because it it was definitely a living soil garden and the material came to me and it just it it didn't look it wasn't as is what i'm typically used to out of my gardens so that that was the biggest comparison right out of the gate but then I'm washing it and I ended up, I think I was washing like a pound of peanut butter and I get to the next one, which is the, the ramp rambutan and the half the amount of material dropped about the same as my, my peanut butter. And I was like, what the hell? And I, you know, and the terps were really good on it. And it, it just, it just proves to you that, you know, it's not, it's not about the look of that flower at all. Really. It was surprising but it was, it was a good surprise. 
but definitely uh, excited to work with some more living soil, some more living soil resin and trying to uh, figure out if that's a move for the future. I mean, you know, it's hard to say because you haven't ran the same things, but do you feel like the living soil ones have any more terps or is there something that you've noticed from maybe some of the living soil stuff you've tried? So I haven't, the living soil that I've tried has all been really good, but the true test would be to run my terps in some living soil. So me and my buddy, Jason, a fuel by foam out, he does living soil gardens and we're going to throw some, some peanut butter into his garden. And we're going to try to, uh, test the terps against, you know, my salt fed, my salt fed resin. And we'll try to, uh, you know, put the jars next to each other, do a side by side and see if the tr- that, that would be the true test in my eyes. Yeah. That'll be cool to see. Well, I think this would be a good opportunity for a second smoke break. You down? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I want to take a moment to thank all the people who make up our community on Patreon. Through their support, we're able to keep producing episodes, including episode 41 with Terp Style, and also to give a shout out to some of our top contributors, including Fueled by Full Melt in Michigan, Anthony in Maine, Stav of Helios Hash, the Baller Headstash in the DF Dub, Kevin of Lifted in Dina, Nate, aka Mids Adjacent in Arizona, Garland in DC, Sandman Hashstar, Boys on the Big Island, Pressing Faux Show, The Chile Relleno Burrito, Macro Melts in SoCal, Jonah in Illinois, The Crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Gastown Fire and their Green Cedar Retreat, Nick the Intern, the homie Big C, David at Rosin Evolution, Melt Walkie Jeff, my dude the Real Cannabis Chris, and Depeche44 in Connecticut. Thank each and every one of you. Now back to the episode. Cool. So let's talk a little bit more about the hash making because you do spend half your days doing that, whether it's washing or pressing rosin. Give us kind of a breakdown of a general rule of thumb of how many days you're washing versus pressing rosin. Um, I'm basically washing once a week and then I'm pressing pretty much once a week too. Like it's basically broke down into like one day a week for each of those things. They, they each take a lot of time on their own. So they get their own days basically. When you're washing, what's a typical wash number for you in fresh frozen weight? Usually uh, 2K. Usually about uh, 2,000 grams wet is my wash sizes. A little bit more some days, but that's basically where I stay. I'm pretty comfortable right there. And you're spinning cans and washing by hand, right? Yep, most of the time. Yep, I am. Definitely um, looking at the Osprey. The Osprey is really interesting to me. I'm just not on that scale yet. But something like that has got my attention for sure. So what's the part of it that has your attention or at least just envisioning more, I guess, automation, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Just, um, less work, more automation and being able to do larger batch sizes in the future. I def I'm not there yet, but I can see that definitely being an, an issue that I want to address like, as being able to do more. Do you ever pull milk or is it all going to rosin at this point? Yes, it's all going to rosin basically at this point. I am working on um, pulling melt. I'm still in like the 
R&D phases of pulling melt, working on it. I'm not at the point of like releasing it at all, but working on it to the point of like understanding it and being able to uh, put out as close to six stars as I possibly can. So definitely that's something that, that I'm currently working on and meeting uh, Adam out in Oklahoma was awesome because his tech and his understanding of it was just like probably one of the best like tutorials I could have got in the understanding of it. So, but yeah, that is the future. I'm definitely working on releasing more melt in the future. That's cool. Do you feel like that will change how you wash? Maybe not necessarily how, but some of the things that you do during your wash? Um, I don't know yet. Honestly, I don't know if there's going to be something I'm going to do differently on wash if I'm going to pull for melt versus like just selecting a specific a micron size. But no, I don't know if there's anything specifically on the wash and that I'm going to change up. Okay, cool. What are the bags that you use currently? Um, I use ice, tra- uh, ice extract bags. And then recently I've been using some uh, rosin evolution bags too. And what size bags do you run? Do you run like the five or eight or how are you doing it since you're pulling all for rosin? Five bags. The rosin, the Evo are five gallon and the ice extract are 10 gallon. Okay, cool. So are you using the five gallon when you're just doing smaller batches or something along that line? Actually, I've recently started using the five gallons just because it was easier to use. And I've like switched over to that full mesh and I kind of liked it. So I just kind of made that change within the last like six months, but I kind of dig these uh, full mesh bags. But yeah, I, I'm just trying to figure out what works best for me. Okay, cool. Let's talk about drying resin. I don't feel like we've really touched on that at all. I'm assuming that it's changed over the last, you know, six, seven years since you've been really washing. What has that looked like for you? What was it like in the beginning? Yeah, in the beginning, it was like drying all these like patties and all kinds of stuff. I actually got a freeze dryer pretty early on. So like I started freeze drying my hash a few years ago. I don't even know exactly how many years ago, but I did get a freeze dryer like pretty early on. And that was just an absolute, that's a game changer for sure. Do you feel like since you've had the freeze dryer for a while, your freeze dryer game got a little better as well over time? Yeah, my, my first freeze dryer, definitely, I didn't have any issues with it for like years, for the first couple of years. But I just recently ran into issues with that. So I'm definitely getting more versed in freeze dryer repair and trying to figure out what's causing these things to uh, malfunction. But yeah, it's just, it's part of the, part of the game. Definitely, they're, they're a very um, useful tool. So being able to uh, fix them when they, when they go down is, is important. Yeah, it does seem like hash makers have to become freeze dryer technicians as well these days to be able to. Do yeah, it. you got. <laughs> yep, you got to in order to keep that thing rolling. From those two thousand grams, what are typically? I guess your. What's the size of the batches that you're drying at this point? Um, I will typically fill up an entire freeze dryer, so like seven shelves. Seven shelves will be filled up, and basically the trays will be filled up. And have you done any adjustments to like freeze dryer settings over time, like getting your shelf temps lower or toyed with that variable at all? 
No, I mean, really, I just kind of set them in the beginning. I've, I've put my shelf temps pretty low and then I basically just set it there and kind of forget it. Basically, like I run my temps at like 30, 30 degrees. So I don't really play with it other than that, really. Okay, cool. And do you spread your stuff pretty thin since you're using all the trays? Yeah, I definitely. It's a spread out evenly throughout every tray, the same thickness. I'm trying to achieve the same thickness on every tray. And I get pretty good results. Like everything's dry usually for the most part. And if there is any inconsistency to where something is still frozen, it's probably because it was just like a thicker pile or maybe it was a little bit, yeah, like thicker in a certain specific spot. Maybe it just doesn't, doesn't dry completely. But that's really, really rare. I'm typically like, you know, 90, 95% of the time it's coming out very unified, like, or it's coming out as a really dry, really dry resin, really good to go. Okay, cool. And let's talk about how your pressing game has changed because we talked about earlier doing the flower rosin. Was that again important? Do you feel like to kind of have a good grasp as to what you were doing now pressing rosin more often? Yeah, I think it all has a, a point in why why I did it all. And it all makes you looking back on it all, it's all from an like a, a perspective of just understanding what, kind of like what I was doing and what I was trying to do. But definitely uh, from pressing flower rosin to pressing bubble hash today, there there's been a lot of changes and variables that I've switched up along the way. What are some of the variables that you've played with in regards to rosin pressing? So temperatures right away and pressures, those are the two, obviously the two biggest things, you know, and I've played with pressures and resins with independent strains too. So I've been able to dial in specifically like how I press my cheesequake or how I press my, you know, mimosa or peanut butter. It might only be a, a five degree difference, but there, there are subtle changes that I've, that I've dialed in and made, you know, over the course of working with these specific cultivars over the years so you know i have recipes for specifically if i'm trying to press point break or you know peanut butter or something like that and they're not there's not a lot of differences but there there are some for sure yeah again it goes back to i think learning a particular genetic and i mean even though there is going to be a variation from run to run like we discussed earlier due to a variety of different factors i think that getting to know that stream is definitely going to be able to give you a better idea as, as to how it's going to typically react, whether that is, you know, slight change in on the rosin press or washing it in a certain way, like the peanut butter or knowing that it does well with the heat tech, like the cheesequake, just all stuff that comes from working with the same genetics for a while. Yes. It comes to just kind of like researching and developing the same thing over and over again but that's kind of what makes it fun too because when i can come up with you know two different or three different or four different products from the same specific material like that's really cool to me so like being able to dial in cheesequake to the point to where there's you know all these different products with it is one of the coolest things that i've been able to really do versus just like create rosin from you know one strain there's different ways that to where you can just like make it dial it in better and like create something different. 
that that's kind of uh, one of those things that I find really special and it keeps, keeps me moving forward and, and like interested in the next step. Yeah, that's cool. Speaking of, I saw the other day you made some CHCA looking stuff. What was that about? Yeah, that was some cheesequake and peanut butter breath, two separate presses, but they were both the, uh, the 90 through 120 bags. And I was trying to um, just work with some THCA on the scale of the same material that I'm making my like cold cure rosin with, not just the byproduct that people are making THCA with. I wanted to actually make it with, you know, my A, my A1 material and see what I could do with it. Just from, just from my own, my own interest and just to understand it from that perspective. So yeah, that's what I did. And it, both of them came out phenomenal. They just, they really crystal clear, like diamond looking stuff, you know? So, and they both really have really good effects. They're both really medicinal. And I was really happy with both of them. Now, will I probably do that again for production? I don't know. It was more of an, it is more of like an R and D thing to try to figure out what I can do with it. But I'll definitely be working more with some THCA in the future with, with uh, different microns and stuff like that. Yeah, that's cool, man. Like I said, one of the things I, I dig about you is you seem to be real passionate about like the craft and doing all this R&D. And we've talked about this a variety of times, but just how at a smaller scale like this, you know, like you said earlier about the Hermie, it is a loss, but it's also... Uh, kind of a learning lesson or can be. But if you were to scale up these R&Ds and big losses to like a bigger facility or something, it would be exponential and the losses would just be extreme, you know, versus doing it at this scale. Yeah, I think I'm definitely blessed to be able to have the creative freedom to make mistakes on my own accord and take the the losses to myself, which yeah, I, I mean, I used to look at it like a loss, but I really don't even kind of look at it like that anymore. I look at it as just like learning and the experimentation of, yeah, I might take, I take that L, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that again. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to switch that thing up and I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to try to get a different outcome the next round. So, but yeah, if I was, if I had a boss breathing down my neck, he probably wouldn't want me making some of the choices, you know, like that could potentially lead to like a failed product or loss of, product basically so yeah being on this small scale is really cool it's really cool to be able to to make these choices and that i don't have to worry about somebody else getting mad at me for it you know so i think that's one of my favorite things about it honestly is just being able to have the the creative freedom to make the choices and the, the mistakes that i have to in order to prolong the process and to understand it further would you say that's up there on one of the most important things for you of being single source? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's one. Yeah, that's huge. It, it takes a lot of the fun out of it if you're doing it for somebody else. Yeah, I, I totally get that. So when you're pressing rosin, I'm curious how big your presses are. Like how much hash are you pressing at one time? Um, I do like... 20 gram presses so like 20 grams of bubble basically and that yields usually like you know 16 17 grams back so like 80 80 82 percent something like that 
But yeah, that's typically my scale is like, you know, 20 gram presses. I don't do anything larger than that based on like my press size and everything like and where I'm comfortable at. So, but that that's where I'm at with it right now. And what size bags are you pressing through? So I'm using the uh, Rosin Evolution 25U bags. Double, I double those up, just one extra bag on top of it. The, the extra bag is just for like traction in the press so it doesn't slip out, basically. Okay, cool. And you said that that 80 to 85 return on bubble to hash rosin is pretty stable across all your cultivars? Yep. I think pressing is pretty standard. I don't think that there's, um, I'm, I'm right around the same press percentage on all the resin, but that definitely can change based on like, you know, temperatures and stuff like that too. If I, if I wasn't, if I was going to press them all at the same temp, I wouldn't probably have a different result at the end of it. So like, you know, understanding which, where to press the, the peanut butter versus the cheesequake, I definitely am able to pull like, you know, at least 80% out. Right. Again, just kind of knowing those subtleties of how each one works. But yeah, at its like sweet spot, you're getting about the same results, which with all of them, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And if something isn't like the temperature is not right or the pressure is not right, even if going down to like a 70% return, I mean, that 10% that you're losing it could be a lot. I mean, if you do it, you know, you do that five times. So that's definitely something you need to pay attention to. and adjust your settings when you're switching different strains for sure. And what's your process for your cold cure at that point, since the majority of your stuff is going into that type of consistency? Uh, it just sits basically. It just sits out um, jar in a jar until it's ready. And they all kind of react differently. They have different time frames on how they do, but basically, yeah, I'm just um, stirring it up at specific different, different times, basically. Do you try to get as much resin as you can and leave as little space as possible? Is that kind of part of your philosophy? I don't really find that I necessarily have to do that. I've seen a lot of guys who they, they try to fill the jars up with the like, least amount of like extra pressure or extra air in there. And then that's your chirp layer. I typically am not filling a jar up that much because of like, when you have to stir it up and mix it up, I, I typically, I don't use a drill or anything. I just, I'm just, I use my hands. So it, like, I'm just stirring it up. And if the jar is completely full, it just takes forever. And it's like, it's strenuous on like your, on your hand to mix it up. So basically I'm about a half jar kind of guy just because it's easier for, I'll just do multiple half jars. Okay, cool. You know, talking about that THCA that we were mentioning earlier, that's, one of the first instances I've seen you of like mixing strains because you said it was the cheesequake and then the peanut butter breath terps, right? Okay. So the, yeah, the THCA, those are two separate presses. So that was peanut butter breath in one press and then cheesequake another press. So they weren't mixed. I see. I see. So yeah, I really, I don't ever mix things. Blending is kind of a cool idea. It's something I probably can look at in the future, but I would probably blend before the press. So I'd blend in the bubble and then I would just mix in the bag and then I'd press it together. Do you feel like that would be more uniform, for example? I think, I think again, I, I don't have this experience or this, I haven't done this yet, but I would think that pressing them together 
versus pressing them separate and then mixing them together after would probably it'd probably be better to press them together in the same bag. Like I would I would assume from the beginning that's probably where I would start. Right. And part of the reason that I brought it up was because I haven't seen you do really any blends. And we talked about this again a bit last time in that you find it really important to have cultivars that are standalone strong enough basically to not have to be blended and like i said so far from everything i've tried from you all the standalone stuff has been fantastic so is that one of the things that you look for when trying to find a cultivar to keep in your garden the standalone terp is is super important to me it's to check as many boxes off as it possibly can so yeah if it's terps and power and just growing and stuff like that yeah, I'm, I'm trying to pay attention to all that kind of stuff. I didn't get into this thinking about blending. So like blending is almost like an afterthought to like creating something that you're, tr- you're trying to create something a little bit better. So you're going to blend it together. But yeah, I'm definitely after like hunting for that fire right out of the gate. Like I want that cultivar to be like hitting and stinky and like, you know, super powerful and all on its own. That, that's important to me. So let's talk about the last cultivar we haven't really talked about in your stable, the mimosa. Where did that come from? So mimosa, funny enough, it's from another buddy, grower, a really good organic grower here. He loves my hash and we've just became buddies over the you know past couple of years. And uh, he's like, man, you, you got you to gotta wash some of this stuff for me. And um, I don't really do that a lot. So, you know, it's kind of hesitant at first. And then he, he ended up giving, gifting me a, you know, a jar of his flower and it was super proper, super proper. So yeah, I ended up taking a cut from him after he, he swore up and down. He had, it was clean and everything like that. So, and luckily I did because it just, it is a fin- fantastic turd. Like it really is. He was right, right out of the gate. I was hesitant about it. It took me a long time to actually accept it. But once I did, I was just like, man, what, what was I thinking? Like, this is super, super good. It, I think it did like three and a half, four percent into loose resin, which is really good. That, I mean, that's, that's a keeper for sure. So again, I was, I was blessed with genetics to be able to work with. And yeah, it just, it just comes down to like knowing some really, really good people and other people that are hunting stuff. And just being out there, and that's all. That's all it is, man. I just, I'm, I'm lucky to have it. And we talked about this last time, but we were talking about how this resin, because of the type of terps it has, does have an effect on the color of the resin. Yeah, the uh, the the trap in the in the mimosa typically has like a darker resin. It's almost pink in in some ways, and this one is a little bit pink. So I've only washed it once so far. It's, it's kind of a newer one, but I'm definitely going to take that one and probably cut it on day like 53, 53, 54, try to go a couple days early with it. And then maybe try to press it a little bit lower all on like, you know, trying to preserve the color a little bit, just make it a little bit more, I guess a little bit lighter or maybe even pull some of that pink out. So that kind of fun and just kind of special, a special one that I'm, uh, looking forward to uh, working with a little bit more. What is it that you like about 
the clarity or kind of lightness and resin? Um, just the overall look of it, man. It's just, if it, if it looks like super, super, you know, I like it to look clear to the yellow, to that amber, to that light amber, but the pink is, is really interesting to me. Like that pink hue that I'm finding with it is one of those things that like, I really like to play with it. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to press a little bit more and to try to mess with it just because I don't know, a new, a different color is kind of cool. So. Yeah, I agree. And you know, there's always that conversation of color and some resin is just, I think naturally lighter than other. I think you mentioned to me in one of our conversations, I don't remember which of the strains it is that you have, but one of them is just usually comes out the lightest. The the peanut butter breath, number seven, is probably my lightest one. I mean, that stuff on the press, on the lower end of the press, can get almost come off like water, like clear like water. And this is the same one that you said is like the wettest one by nature. Yeah, exactly. That's definitely uh, naturally just the wettest. Like it just leaks terps. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, I brought this up to you last time about how it's also kind of interesting to me how the cheesequake is super loud in its own way. And the peanut butter breath seven, like you've been saying, is maybe the loudest one. And the quality of the resin between them is so different. You know, one of them is super kind of stable, if you want to call it that, in the cheesequake. And then the other one is super slick. So the obviously the cuticles and the quality of the trichomes are different. But in the end, in the jar, they're both super pungent. Yeah, yeah. They're both different. They both have different traits, like the wetness of the resin and the way that it cures out for sure. But they both have the terp factor. And that's something that I'm looking for in all of them. Like all of my jars, I want to have a lot, you know, a, a high percentage of terps so that it stinks. Like that to me is super important. Yeah. Like you've told me many times, man, the most important thing for you is putting fire in a jar. And I think at this point, you know, we spoke about this privately, how I feel almost in a way, especially in the hash sector, in cannabis in general, it's like, it's heading towards more like aromatherapy versus necessarily it being about the power. Like we talked about earlier, ideally it could be a 50, 50 kind of thing, but yeah, definitely people and the public is focused on, you know, how loud the jars are and how much they smell. And obviously that has all to do with the terps. So. Yeah. I think the overall, like that loudness of the jar comes through on like the power level. You can definitely can expect something to have a little bit more power if it, if it stinks louder for sure. And is this mimosa more like of a daytime smoke? The mimosa is definitely like a daytime smoke to me, but it is, um, it's very, very good. Mimosa to me is like almost like my breakfast smoke. Like I like that in the morning and early daytime. It's super fruity. I typically leave like the gassier ones for the evening, the later in the day. But yeah, like the uh, mimosa and the point break, I've been liking those during the day. They definitely pack power too, but they just taste so good, man. They're just, they're really just a really pleasant, pleasant oil to smoke on. Yeah. I got to take a dab of that in Oklahoma, the mimosa. I don't remember it 
all that well, but the point break sounds pretty interesting as well with like the creamy kind of citrus back in that you're saying. And it's also kind of cool to have a variety of like effects in your hash stable in particular, because, you know, a lot of, I think hashers kind of, I guess maybe at this point, they're really all hybrids, but more so they lean, like, I would say kind of on the medicinal side and not so much like being day smokes. Yeah. It's interesting to have different strains that you can smoke different points your day. Like, for example, like the cheesequake, to me, I personally don't smoke cheesequake until it's like the evening, just because it, it's, the, it's a stronger one. And, you know, it, it can definitely, uh, uh, it can put you on the couch, you know, it'll, it'll put you down. Like if you got to sit there and you got to talk to people, like, it, you know, I might, I might smoke the point, you know, or, or the trap kush, but the cheesequake is just such a, uh, it's, it's a hitter, man. It just really, it's definitely my, my most medicinal strain for sure. Yeah. It, like you said, it's, it is interesting to have different ones to have throughout the day. And it's funny. I've been, you're right. That cheesecake is pretty strong and it's like kind of heavy as well. So <laughs> I've, I've been puffing a little bit on it. <laughs> so I'm definitely feeling it for sure. Well, man, Ryan, I appreciate you hanging out with me this long. I know we've been talking for a while. I'll start winding it down now you know you mentioned to me that you have a future washroom that you're excited about in essence kind of bringing together what does that look like what are some of the things that you're excited about just remodeling and rebuilding a new cold space that's super cool to me just new refrigeration and new freezers, just more space. I typically, my space is kind of small. It's just big enough for like one to two people at this point. So having a a larger area to actually, you know, get more work done and have, have more square footage in there. But yeah, just a, a super clean cold space, basically. Do you see yourself in any way scaling up, whether it's in the garden, in the washroom or in both? Yeah, yeah, I definitely do. I could def I definitely want to scale up from where I'm at right now, but it, it it's going to come down to creating like the proper team of people to really and I and I don't want to scale up large. Like I'm not talking about scaling up like to commercial cannabis or anything like that. Michigan's doing some interesting things with micro licenses. They're still trying to like figure those out right now. So that that's an interesting play. That, I think that jumps up to like 300 plants. So like even on a micro scale it'll be about 300 plants. But yeah, like that, that's interesting to me to scale up on a smaller scale to still create a craft product. The commercialization of it isn't really where I want to take this at all. So like I, I'm definitely leaning more towards craft, small batch, putting fire in jars, man. That's it. Do you feel like there's a point in expanding where the same quality can't be sustained? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that once it scales up to the point, to a to a certain point, your your quality starts falling off. Like you're you're giving up your quality for your scale. I, I mean, I've kind of seen that with like buddies that I know that are in the legal game and stuff like that. So I think 
to create the best quality, the best resin possible, I think it needs to be on a smaller batch, personally. It's just more love for the plant and greater outcomes. But within that, there might be some changes like we talked about earlier with the watering where scaling up might mean having to change some of the practices that you have now. Yeah, definitely. Like if I was, I think that scaling up to even a 500 plants, you're definitely looking at automation for your watering. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're still going to give up the time that you're going to still take with those plants. Because I think with at a 300 plant or a 500 plant, it's still doable for one to two guys to really like pay attention to that garden and make sure that it's proper. I mean, if you get up to like 10,000 plants or whatever, yeah, you're going to need teams of people and you're going to have quality is going to lack in certain areas. But I think with the right team of guys like that are passionate about the resin, it can be done properly on a smaller scale. At this point, what is the cutoff percentage for you for a washer? Like 2.5. If I love the turf and if I'm, if I'm in love with it and it's like a 2, 2.5 to loose, I mean, I would probably still wash it. I'd probably, you know, I'd keep it around if, if I'm, if I'm in love with that turf, but like, if it goes below like 2%, like that, that's really, there's a lot of work involved and like, you're just not seeing the end, the end yields and stuff like that. So it'd be really tricky to keep something around like on that low end. What would be some advice that you would give someone who wants to get into cultivating, but feels intimidated? Just do it small scale, like put one light in a, you know, a four by four tent or something, you know, just start. And like the best experience I've got is just from doing it and, and learning and um, really taking the L's, but changing that up and, and learning from that. So the experience, I basically just say, you just gotta, you, you gotta start small. Is my, that, that's what I would say. You mentioned to me that part of the reason you don't like to bring in other material to wash outside of your home is because you're set up in a way where the amount of material you have already ready to go keeps you busy. Would at any point you be interested in expanding your processing services, for example? The way that I'm set up is basically keeps me pretty busy. Processing for, you know, a couple homies here and there isn't a big deal, but like to do it on contracts, I, I don't think I'll go that route just based on, I, I hold a lot of value in growing and farming my own resin and, and doing that. So like, I, I like to focus on that part of it versus just processing. So I think that, I, I mean, I'll, I'll probably do a little bit more processing in the future, but I would definitely lean more towards my own single source operation for sure. Right. Tell me about how you feel that the Michigan scene has developed in the solventless world, because, you know, let's say when you took that first dive in 2014, 15, it probably wasn't very present there at all. And now seven years later, there's a lot of good solventless coming out of Michigan. Yeah, there is. There's more and more just within the last six months to a year, we've seen like just huge, you know, bunch more companies and um, processors come on, come online and just, they're out there. I think more and more people, are getting into it probably because they're looking at it as like the last resort because they're probably not able to move some flour and stuff like that. So 
that that's an interesting perspective to get in from that um, perspective. But there is a lot of good solventless hash work going on out here for sure. Absolutely. Do you feel that there's so much so that there's been an oversaturation in the market in the last couple of years, or at least in this six months to a year that you refer to? Yeah, I think that there has been an oversaturation of solventless products, but I think that the consumer is aware of those, like the different levels. There's a lot of like cheaper product out there, but it, you can tell right away. And I mean, people typically will can tell like if this is, you know, older, outdoor, darker versus something that's uh, a better quality. So yes, there's definitely a lot more of it out there, but I think the quality, there's, there's not a lot more quality. I think the quality is like, you know, right around the same. There's still specific companies and processors are putting out heat still, but then there's a lot of, you know, middle of the road stuff. That's just, you know, pretty average. Yeah. And you mentioned to me last time that you feel that a lot of these, let's call them legacy brands that have been in the area for a while, they are still producing high quality stuff or possibly even improving. Yeah, for sure. The, um, that, yeah, the quality comes down to the, the legacy guys that, you know, we're still doing, doing good work three, four years ago, five years ago. So those there's, there's some of those guys out there that are still putting out really good work. And, and there's some new guys on the scene too. There's some new guys that are, they're stepping up and proving themselves, but it's still like a small community, I guess. It's still kind of a small community. It's not, it's not anything huge yet. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think all around, especially the quote unquote solventless community, it's like a very small community within a larger community. And then obviously we have like these regional kind of differences and stuff, but it it's cool to see it developing and getting more popular. And like you said, bringing other products into the market, they might not be, for example, as high of quality, but you did bring this up last time that it does create a good option for consumers and having a different price point as long as the product, you know, is coming from material that's proper and doesn't have any kind of funky stuff going on behind it. Yeah, I agree with that too. As long, there is a need for a lower priced solventless product in the market for sure. Everybody can't afford top tier, like, you know, grade A rosin all the time. I mean, it, it gets pricey. So to offer the consumer, you know, a $40 gram or something like that, that that's super affordable and they're, you know, they don't have to smoke BHO anymore or it's a safe alternative. I think it's really cool. I think that's cool that, they're, that those products are coming out there more affordable for people. And I think it's important for the, the solventless movement for sure. Since you like to R&D a lot, especially with like consistencies and stuff, do you ever see yourself putting out something like vape pen carts? Yeah, I'm actually um, trying to figure out what card I like the best right now, whether it's wickless or ceramic or disposable. I'm kind of working with a few different cart brands right now to try to see specifically um, the pros and cons of which one I want to work with. But yeah, I've definitely, just within the past like three months, I've been working more on that for sure. Have you puffed on solventless carts yourself in this R&D? Yep, yep. I'm definitely smoking on them right now. I mean, not right now, but like got my wife one. She really likes it. 
And I think it just is coming down to flavor. And like the first one, the first problem was like the recharge, uh, non-rechargeables. So they were actually like dying on people with oil still in them and you can't remove the oil once it's in there. So that's a problem. But now I'm working with a different cart that is rechargeable and it has three different heat settings on it. So you can actually change the temperature of it, which is really cool. And then you can recharge them. The only problem with these ones is they're kind of a pain to fill. <laughs> versus, So yeah, there's lots of research and development going into the cart game. Lots of people really like the solventless carts, man. They're super like portable and like just easy. And I don't know, my wife likes them. And I, she's like been on me. She's like, you got to make me another one. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I think it's becoming kind of like a fan favorite amongst some people. And, and like you said, they're versatile. They, you can take them on the go and stuff. I definitely feel like they're a different product. You know, it doesn't, it, it's not like taking a dab or even taking a Puffco rip or something. I think no, it's, it's different. It's definitely, yeah, it's going to be a lower temperature and I don't know what they, what the, they're actually burning at. I would guess like four to 450 is my guess. That's where the, they, they kind of come off at. And that's probably why, like, I don't know, my wife likes them and like her friends like them and stuff like that because they don't really dab regularly all the time, but you know, they love the cart because it's given them, I guess a little dab, but it's not like quite as, you know, it's not like the full dab, you know? So that level they're really liking. Yeah, that's cool. Have you ever shopped in the recreational market in Michigan? I have, I've been into a couple shops. Yeah. I don't typically go being a single sourcer. I, I have access to a lot of products myself. So I'm not really a, shop customer but um i've definitely been in and there's some there's some good stuff there's some decent stuff out there were you impressed by any of it um my my level of impressment is probably different than the typical you know customer that's walking in there because i'm i'm looking for something that is in my eyes probably better than something that i can do and and i'm i'm not really i haven't really found any anything in the shops that i personally like or i'm going back to Again, I mean, I, as a processor, I just have access to so much of my own stuff that it just really doesn't make sense for me to go and spend money on recreational cannabis. Fair. What's a terp that you would like to have in your garden that you don't yet? Oh, that's a good question. So like I want, some, I want a papaya and I really want a guava. I'm hunting some guava right now. But yeah, and then, I mean, honestly... There's there's probably some out there that are just I don't know the names of that I would definitely recognize in my nose and I'd just be like that's it <laughs> or whatever. So, but right now I'm definitely looking for the some fruitier ones. The guava is really interesting to me. I really want a, a good guava. Nice. Three people that you would say have influenced your hash making career. Oh, um, probably. Uh, I mean. Bubble Man used to watch his videos all the time. Tony V, I think he's he's a G, and he he's always doing really good work researching and trying to take this process to the next level. And I mean, honestly, I think Solventless Mind, uh, he, he he's a he's a good dude. He he uh, definitely works with a lot of a lot of cool material out there. So those guys definitely have influenced me. Your favorite strain from your own garden that's time of the day specific. Um, 
But <laughs> honestly, <laughs> honestly, right now, I'm probably smoking the most Trop Kush. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll be interested, hopefully, to try that at some point because, uh, yeah, I'm curious to see, like you said, if it's Kush heavy, like you said, and uh, just a little bit of Trop in there. Absolutely. Well, cool, man. Last question. If there was anyone on the show that you could hear from, who would it be? Oh, man. Um, yeah, uh, man, honestly, meeting you guys out in Cali, or I mean, in Oklahoma was, was cool. Meeting uh, Humphreys Hash out there was cool. Um, MTS Farms was cool. Those guys would be real. Those guys have a lot to say, I'm sure. But honestly, having a Cuban on there again would be cool. I mean, he's one of my favorite interviews and I'd be cool to hear what he's been up to in the past few years, you know, just because I think he was one of your, your first ones or one of the first ones. So it'd be cool to hear what, you know, what he's been up to. Yeah, that's a cool suggestion. Yeah. Uh, Ozzy and I, it was like the, the third episode. So it's been quite some time now, unbelievably. So that that would be cool. But yeah, I, both Mikey from MTS Farms and Tom from Humphrey Hashish would be interesting in their own right as well. So yeah, man, I appreciate the suggestions and Again, I appreciate you taking multiple times to talk and uh, as well as coming out to Coffee and Donuts. And like I mentioned earlier, just super appreciative of you uh, being a supporter of the podcast for such a long time, even though I didn't (laughs) know that it was Terp Style until we connected the dots in Oklahoma. Uh, It's been really nice to getting to know you as well, man. Same thing here. Same thing here. I appreciate this. This is uh, truly an honor meeting and linking and talking these conversations have been awesome so i'm looking forward to um talking more in the future yeah likewise man wishing you all the best going forward with everything everybody who listened and kept up with us this long we appreciate you hanging out and we'll catch you next time thank you for listening to the hashish in if you'd like the podcast we'd love for you to subscribe rate and give us a review until next time 